1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, ten till one, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Massive thanks to Patrick McGuire for looking after the place last week while I was off, mostly talking about my book. If I'm honest, so it looked quite a lot like work. But I'm back now, and of course, tomorrow, Tuesday, October the thirty first, we launch How to Win an Election. It's a brand new podcast featuring Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, and Daniel Finkelstein. If you've enjoyed Danny over the last three or so years, talking about how politics works on Red Box, then you are going to love this. Polly's been part of the Times radio show for some time as well from Think Tank Thursdays, and Peter Mannerson needs no introduction. The three of them taking us through, basically counting down probably the next year up to the general election and taking us behind the scenes of being in similar campaigns before. They've both won and, let's be honest, lost millions of votes over the years. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. You can find it right now while you're listening to this episode of Red Box. Just search how to win an election, click follow or subscribe or whatever you need to do and you can catch how to win an election the first episode tomorrow, Tuesday, October the 31st. Right, coming up on today's episode, a big week in politics actually. We've got the COVID inquiry kicks off again this week. Dominic Cummings is there. We'll bring you analysis of that when we've had the benefit of his wisdom. The other big thing that's happening this week is of course is Rishi Sunak's AI conference is AI Summit. we can take a particular look today at the threat it poses to politics and elections. That's our big thing. It's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at some of the other news stories around today with today's Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. And hello to Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Um, Let's uh, just sort of take stock of where we are, of uh, the Labour Party's ability to turn an international crisis into an internal conflict of their own. How do you think Keir Starmer is managing what is clearly a tricky, tense situation between his MPs, some frontbenchers, calling uh, publicly for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, Uh, while uh, that not being government policy. I think it's out to something like 55 Labour MPs, more than a quarter of all of uh, the 199 MPs. But so far, nobody actually from the Shadow Cabinet. Is he getting this balance right, do you think, Rachel? I mean, it feels to me a bit like, having watched this like a normal person watching the news last week, he's just sort of decided to to sort of have his position. The Shadow Cabinet are holding that line, but he's not going to go around punishing Labour MPs who... For whatever reason, go go a bit further than he has.
2: Yeah, and I think that's fair enough, actually. So, I mean, obviously, Keir Starmer, when this horrendous attack happened on October the seventh, was really aware of the history of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the Corbyn um, scandalous uh, behaviour towards uh, uh, on anti-Semitism. Um, so he was really keen to have a sort of very clear line in support of Israel. Um, You know, the situation has changed since then in the sense that there is now this humanitarian crisis evolving, but also it's not a kind of black and white situation. And I think it's okay for MPs to have different nuances and different views. And there is a sort of, you know, we all feel a bit conflicted. Um, you know, obviously, we watch those awful, awful things, um, you know, in on October the 7th, but also now you see the, the humanitarian disaster evolving and people are allowed to feel that both things are, are terrible in a way. Um, not that there's a sort of moral equivalence, but, you know, it's just, it's really awful. Um, and I think MPs, also allowed to have that um, nuanced position and there's also a kind of you know what's the difference between a humanitarian pause and a ceasefire so there's a bit of dancing on the head of a pin here I think too.
1: There's also uh, Libby it always strikes me when, when something like this happens is that because the situation evolves uh, both on the ground and in terms of, the sort of geopolitics actually if you are the prime minister, or actually the U.S. president, or the U.S. Secretary of State, you are able to change your position when it when the fact the situation changes. Actually, in a way that we seem to sometimes hold the opposition to a higher standard of of well, hang on, you've changed your your you've changed your position there. You're, you know why are you not? Um, because in a way, all the leader of the opposition can do is say things. It's not like uh, if you are in power, you can sometimes do things as well. Um, and that actually America has moved, moved its, its language already on this as well.
3: Yes, and I agree with just about everything uh, Rachel has said. And I think one should point out gently that uh, as leader of the opposition in the UK, uh, he has absolutely no power either to cause a ceasefire or to prevent a ceasefire. You know, I think that the things he said have been just about right. But it is his job as a leader, a proposed leader, to speak against disorder and mob rule and the inadequacy of policing and the unfairness of policing right now on the Streets in Britain. You know the fact that the fear of uh, furious pro-Palestinian mobs is actually causing the police to go far too soft on them, and far too uh, there's far too little attention being paid to anti-Semitism. So I think it is his job to talk about that kind of thing, um, and you know. <sighs> as Rachel basically says and you say, to back the government and the US and the EU in hope for a humanitarian pause and to express British willingness to help victims of mm. conflict uh, in disasters like this, you know, whenever it becomes possible to help them. Uh, but I think Shabana Mahmoud is wrong and Jess Phillips and Peter Kyle are right, you know, that, that uh, the, the, the idea that he, he should immediately swivel in order to get a better Muslim Muslim vote across the country is just completely wrong.
1: And we'll see. I mean, the fact that Parliament isn't sitting this week means that, uh, to some extent, this won't be tested in uh, in quite the same uh, way as if, uh, you know, you had, you had MPs popping up, as they were last week, um, uh, and setting out their stalls in the Commons, you know, with, with uh, Keir Stum on the front bench. as so well. We'll no doubt return... Uh, to the politics of all of that when uh, when Parliament returns next week. Uh, one thing that is happening this week, it's quite a big moment, actually. The, um, the off-on uh, COVID inquiry uh, is back this week and reaches a potentially quite significant... Moment, you've got uh, Martin Reynolds, he of the Bring Your Own Bottle fame, uh, and Lee Kane, Boris Johnson's Director of Communications, uh, are up uh, there today. Uh, Tomorrow, Tuesday, (laughs) Dominic Cummings gives uh, evidence. Uh, There's already been speculation about what various uh, WhatsApp messages might have said. Uh, You know, I think it might shine a a horrible light on the culture at number 10. Uh, But also we might actually get some sense of how some of the decisions were being taken. Um, Libby, are you ready to get cross all over again about Covid?
3: Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, I, mean, I have to say you're, you're sounding like a small child who's been told that he's going to the pantomime on Monday and the circus on Tuesday. <laughs> and so on. It's just all going to be fascinating. But I mean, say what you like about our inadequate government. At least it has handed over all these embarrassing WhatsApps. I am terribly shocked by the way the Scottish government has hidden or deleted them you know it, that feels disgraceful you know it, they maybe don't want us to know how many of the decisions were cosmetic ones to make Scotland look good rather than England in the pandemic response so I, I'm glad all this stuff is coming out however embarrassing it is however it makes our, our leaders look uh, you know misogynistic and, and opportunistic and horrible but I, I am looking forward to it like you I'm thinking right okay let's let's learn more this week.
1: Yeah, it is extraordinary. So Nicola Sturgeon gave a clear commitment two years ago to forward all government WhatsApp messages and COVID communication to any subsequent public inquiries into how the pandemic was handled. However, it's understood that WhatsApp messages sent by the former First Minister uh, were manually deleted from her phone. But it wasn't just uh, her. The messages of 70 Scottish government figures, including the National <sighs> Clinical Director Jason Leach, uh, were also uh, not retained. But some of them were sort of deleting them at the end of each day. Obviously perhaps aware of uh of of how useful uh, they were going to be um despite the fact uh, that they'd said that they would all, nothing would be off limits and it would all be uh it would all be released um uh, yeah, by it's all by a bit Michael Rebecca Sturgeon.
3: Vardy isn't it really
1: yeah whoops a I've dropped my phone off the back of a off the back of a boat. What do you what do you make of this, uh Rachel?
3: Well I've
2: noticed that um people in government and civil servants and ministers, you're getting more and more WhatsApp replies with a thing that says, I've forgotten what the wording is, but automatically deletes or something after a certain time. So it's almost then people are now preemptively making sure that there aren't WhatsApp messages to be stored. So this may be the last time that actually we get (laughs) such a kind of incredible stash of embarrassing WhatsApp messages. Um, And really, uh, for me, it's going to be not, not so much about COVID, although obviously it is about COVID, but about the culture in Downing Street and this kind of bully boy, misogynistic, macho approach that seemed to have taken hold um, under Boris Johnson and the kind of attitudes that, um, you you know, have started to come out and that I, I suspect we'll see more this week. For me, it's about the sort of, management of government the chaos in downing street the kind of culture in whitehall that's as revealing and interesting as the actual particular decisions on covid or incidents about party gate
1: it's interesting i mean i sort of wonder because there's some suggestion we don't actually know yet because we haven't seen uh, the messages that some of the the whatsapps you know the, some, you know experts coming into downing street to make presentations on the the progression of the pandemic. Uh, and it's been suggested Lee Cain and Dominic Cummings, the prime minister's direct communications and and chief of staff, sort of WhatsApping about each other about the people making the presentations. And there's part of me that wonders. I mean, gr- gratuitous, probably entertaining, maybe, an insight into their psyche, almost certainly. But is that pertinent to the to the pandemic? And actually, don't we all do that, Libby? We all, if after after a particularly boring meeting. Uh, sidle up to the person who's you? caught. God, that was a total waste of time. He doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't he? Uh, everyone does that. It's just if you're doing it in WhatsApp, it has a permanence. Do we need to know about that?
3: Yes, I think we do. Um, I think we need to have some insight right now because of the pandemic because it had such enormous and damaging effects which are still going on in education and in children in health generally in the in the running of the nhs it had enormous effects they were doing huge and important jobs if they wanted to sound off about the ridiculousness of people around them they should Sound off to their families privately and verbally, uh, you know, at the very least on, on on a private phone. Uh, I think you know if you're if you're using if you're you know if if you're if you're mixing up your private feelings with your actual duty and your actual intellectual sort of grasp of what should be done for the best for people who depend on you, uh, then I think we're entitled to, to see this stuff.
1: Um, Libby, I just want to talk to you about your uh, your column today, which starts off. Uh, in sort of deep history, um, uh, and then, it's, well, it's, explain what it's about, because it's obviously Halloween tomorrow, uh, there are um, the, the, the modern day witch hunting uh, that goes on, uh, yeah. it, 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 um, basically online these days, the sort of the rounding up of people who don't quite fit.
3: Well, and people lose jobs over it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was sparked by a particularly good piece of drama called The Ungodly by Joanna Carrick uh, down here in, in the east in, in Ipswich. Because it emerges from three years in which various drama groups in this, in this group, youth and community and disability and prison inmates as well working in Warren Hill Prison, have all been working on their Witchfinder project. They've been looking at what happened in the 1640s, how within three years more witches were identified and hanged than in the preceding 160 years, you know, despite the Reformation. Um, You know, enormous thing, all led by the Witchfinder General, who was a very young man. He was between age of 24 and 27 is when he managed to create these massive legal murders. And it was just so interesting. And you sort of think, actually, all these people, all these these various drama groups, and they're all talking and chatting about it afterwards. And everybody sort of was thinking about how you can with charismatic leadership create a sense that there's a whole lot of people who are desperately to blame and ought to be abolished i mean considering what we have now in you know conspiracy accusation over gender and race and anti-semitism even vaccination conspiracies is kind of back on trend you know this this idea of of simplifying and and creating creating enemies and going all out to get them you know and just because it's not mumbling old women who might be witches you know it's exactly it's exactly the same i mean these days the witch finder general matthew hopkins frankly you know he'd probably be out there shouting you know punch a turf you know or else he'd be out in the streets doing from the river to the sea not having read anything at all about israel and palestine for years before you know it it's the way people can be caught up in this hysteria that i found fascinating and beautifully evoked in the ungodly the play
1: yes yeah, it's, it's, it's it's the insight into the human psyche down the centuries i suppose the, the some people being prone to this sort of uh, behaviour. Um, yeah, it was a great. It was a great read. Anyway, uh, while we've just been, <laughs> while you've just talking then, uh, somebody's texted in saying, uh, just talking about WhatsApping and uh, in government. As a civil servant, we were all WhatsApping each other during remote meetings during COVID. One of the most frustrating things about returning to in-person meetings has been our inability to call people morons privately <laughs> in the moment.
3: Times Radio with Matt Chorley.
1: Okay, good morning to you. Uh, good to have you with us. Still joined by uh, Libby Powys and Rachel Sylvester. Uh, Libby Rachel, t- t- what, how would you describe your accent, Libby?
3: Oh, ordinary RP, middling, middling English, educated, <laughs>
1: boring. Rachel?
4: Oh, I've no idea. I'll leave that to you, Matt.
1: Well, it's all right. We've got an expert. Amanda Cole <laughs> is a lecturer at the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex. Hi, Amanda. Morning. Thank you for having me on. No, it's good to have you with us. Is, uh, is, mid- is middling an accent?
4: I suppose people can define their accents how they like, but I mean, it's not a term that we would use as linguists.
1: <laughs> but you've been looking at this, and you've been, you found that Cockney and the Queen's English, uh, as you understand it, are, 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 are disappearing among younger people.
4: Yeah, so in some research that we've done, um, basically, we had a group of young people, so 193 young people, sort of aged 18 to 33 from across the southeast, specifically, so London and surrounding counties, and we had a computer algorithm that sort of listened as much as a computer algorithm can listen, um, and it grouped people basically on how similarly they spoke to each other based on how they pronounced different words. Um, And it found that there were these three main accents spoken by these young people in the South East, which we labelled as standard southern British English, Estuary English and multicultural London English but we didn't find um, that there was a Cockney accent or a kind of received pronunciation, sort of Queen's English accent, that at least came out as kind of dominant within the accent spoken by young people in the South East.
1: Okay, let's take a look at, that, at some of some of these examples uh, using some uh, some famous voices, if you like. Uh, so this is Estuary English, which is probably the one that people are most, perhaps most familiar with, the likes of Olly Murs, Adele, and then Jay Blades of so the Pear Shop. He's on the show uh, later on, actually, talking about what he would do if he ruled the world. Uh, so let's take a listen to Jay Blades. The first big
5: change that I'll do is everybody has to adopt a grandparent or a grandmother.
1: Uh, that's, his, uh, that's his suggestion. What, what are the characteristics of Estuary English then?
4: So Estuary English is quite similar to Cockney. Um, it's definitely kind of more close to the accent than maybe any other across the southeast. But rather than just being an accent spoken exclusively in London or East London, we kind of find it across the region um, among young people. And it's kind of a toned down or a more muted version of Cockney. Um, So, for instance, you might hear words like mouth said with the tongue a little bit further forward in the mouth, so it could sound like mouth. And it wouldn't happen to the same extreme as what we'd expect in Cockney, but it's certainly to a greater degree than what we would expect, say, in, like, received pronunciation or standard Southern British English.
1: Uh, Well, let's move on to that. Standard Southern British English, spoken by – this is quite the list, this – Ellie Goulding, Josh Widdicombe and Prince Harry. These
5: games are not solely about medals – pbs or finishing lines
1: they are about overcoming any and all perceptions that have held you back and uh, Lib- Libby, me was that what sort of you 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 would probably put yourselves in standard southern british english
3: i uh, thought that sounded uh had too much of an edge of posh on it to um to be standard uh it, it's, it's got that little bit of uh that, that little bit of hunt and shoot and fishing about it in
1: harry Oh, it's actually in a way that Josh w- I wouldn't say Josh Widdicombe sounds that much like Prince Harry. How did you group these together then, Amanda?
4: So we said potentially Prince Harry. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what we said in the paper. So we said potentially Prince Harry, but we said maybe people like Ellie Golden, um, Josh Widdicombe. So also none of us will have the same accent all the time. We may use one accent one time when, you know, if we're given a speech, we may be more formal, but another time we may sound less formal. Um but have a British English we would define it as kind of, again, a kind of muted version of received pronunciation or Queen's English. Um, The way that young people now speak, the kind of prestigious accent that's perceived as standard in the southeast, isn't exactly the same as received pronunciation. It has changed, it's taken on more features that are kind of more general across the southeast. So for instance, you may hear Prince Harry at times produce a glottal stop. Um, So, you know, saying what was, for instance, that in what it's sometimes a glottal stop. Yeah. And that is not something we would expect in Queen's English. You can sometimes hear the L in standard Southern British English be pronounced kind of like a vowel, the way that I would say it. So like ball, well, wall. And we might not expect someone who speaks standard Southern British English to do it maybe as much as me or in those words. <laughs> but maybe in a word like Wimbledon, the L could start to become kind of a bit like a worse sound. And this again, this isn't something we would expect in Queen's English. So it is kind of this more broad, more general version.
1: And, Rachel, do you think we're still a nation which judges people by their by their accents?
2: Yes, and I think what's really interesting is how people adapt their accent. Um, so remember how Tony Blair sort of affected an estuary English accent to sort of be man of the people. Um, and I remember speaking to Rufus Norris, the head of the National Theatre recently, and he was saying um he had this brilliant phrase it was eyes are the window into the soul and the voice is the door that you it's it's the way in which you convey who you are your identity to the world around you i think it's fascinating that people change um in order to project a certain image and that
3: is because they're being judged
1: um what do you think libby Do do we still judge people by the way they speak
3: yes yes i i i like i mean what we're not talking about here is regional accents yeah you know the fact that we sort of tend to trust Scots, or at least we we used to till the whatsapp nonsense (laughs) Um, and um you know you you feel i feel very warm about geordies if i'm on one of these phone calls to a bank or something and their call center is geordie i just always know it's all going to be all right i may be quite wrong but we have preconceptions about regional accents i think that's a much more interesting thing to to work around
1: Rachel Sylvester and Libby Poe was there and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, would you vote for AI? What impact is it gonna have on the next election?
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The big thing on Times Radio. You
0: say, "You're unbelievable." Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, the next election really will be unbelievable. At least if you listen to the doomsday scenarios of some who think the ease with which misinformation and disinformation could be spread will make it hard to know what is real and what isn't, undermining uh, the foundations of democracy. Think it sounds far-fetched? Well, there are already suggestions that fake clips played a part in the Slovakian election. We've already seen fake audio of Keir Starmer, the potential to harm... Labour's electoral prospects here in the UK. Well, of course, Rishi Sunak is hosting his big AI summit this week. A 100 politicians, tech bosses and academics from around the world gathering at Bletchley Park, where, of course, Alan Shurring's codebreakers helped secure victory during World War II. The goal of the summit is to form an international consensus on how to use this emerging and rapidly developing technology for good whilst minimising the risks it could pose. But some of those risks are pretty stark, as the Prime Minister made clear in a speech to the Royal Society just last week. Get this wrong, and AI could make it easier to build chemical or biological weapons. Terrorist groups could use AI to spread fear and destruction on an even greater scale. Criminals could exploit AI for cyber attacks, disinformation, fraud, or even child sexual abuse. And in the most unlikely but extreme cases, there is even the risk that humanity could lose control of AI completely. So we should sitting out talking about the risks of AI. Well, documents published by the government list some of the examples of potential harm caused by Frontier AI, which uh, could degrade the information environment. Among those risks, they include reducing public trust in true information, institutions, and civic processes, such as elections, which is what we wanted to take a look at today. Mitigating the risks of AI is, of course, all the more urgent, with elections due to be held in the UK next year and in the US and in other significant countries across Europe. So what threat does AI pose to the democratic process? Well, Kate Domit is a professor of digital politics at the University of Sheffield. and joins me now. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Um, just give us a sense first of the potential threats to democracy of AI. Is it just producing fake video, fake audio, fake pictures? Or is there something about the process of the way elections are fought that AI could play a part in?
5: it's really important to be quite careful about what we're talking about here. So AI does indeed pose a threat. And it's because it can kind of create content that is difficult to recognise whether it's been AI generated. Um, Often a lot of the tools that are creating AI content have biases within them. So you know, we might see particular um, biases kind of coming up within that. But I think there's a kind of real need to pause and be quite careful about like how extensive is ai currently being used and i do a lot of research talking to political parties election campaigners and they're really not using ai at the moment so i think if that threat is going to be there it will kind of come from outside actors and probably won't be as as extensive as some of this kind of fear-mongering is depicting
1: and i suppose to some extent if it's if it's being used to generate uh, video of, you know, something happening which didn't really happen, um, it is possible to do that already. You could just hire some very talented CGI uh, experts who, you know, it is possible to fake stuff. It's just the way that, that using uh, AI platforms may, might make that easier. But it's not like we haven't had that capability for a long time.
5: Yeah, I think that's really true. You know, people have been able to fabricate and make claims or doctor images uh, for a long time. It's it's something about the scale and the speed by which you can use AI tools to do this that's significant.
1: And what about sort of using it to gather information on the electorate and then target the electorate? So sort of moving away slightly from the sort of, here's a photo of uh, Keir Starmer without any trousers on, which is actually a fake. The The sort of the process of... Uh, finding out information, processing that information, and then using it to target. is it, Does AI potentially... I mean, actually, I suppose, you know, there's a perfectly, in, you know, innocuous, benign uh, methods, possibly. But is, is there a, a role that AI could play in that, both for political parties and, as you said, like, external actors?
5: Yeah, it could do. You know, it can, it can shortcut a lot of these, like, labour-intensive processes. But, again, these are kind of... You need to think about the politics here... We actually know from, you know, looking at the practice of political parties that they don't actually target that um, acutely. They don't go down to really, really personalised individual level targeting. And the reason is, is because it's creepy and people don't react well to it. So they actually tend to do kind of broad based targeting, even though we've had a lot of coverage about micro targeting and the challenges of that. So I think we've also got to think about the incentives to use AI and also the risks around politics as to why these things may not actually transpire in practice.
1: That's really interesting. So so at the moment because we've, we've we've seen you know every election comes around everyone declares it's the first Facebook election or it's the first Twitter election you know I imagine next year will be declared the first TikTok election. Um and particularly through through Facebook and Twitter where you can you know anyone can can post an advert on it and choose down to quite levels of detail who they who they target with that advert. It's interesting, your, your point is that it, it doesn't work if it's too targeted. If it's, you know, I know that you're a 40-year-old man who lives in Sheffield, uh, that then becomes uh, creepy. It's counterproductive. So there's a, there's a sort of, the, the human aspect kicks in.
5: Yeah, there's quite a nice example from a fair few elections ago where the Labour Party sent out a leaflet about... Um, Uh, cancer care um, to just a a quite broad group of voters. And, you know, someone who was a cancer patient received it and thought that they'd been micro-targeted based on their specific health data. And it caused this huge backlash. And I think, you know, that wasn't actually what was going on, but that example illustrates how people can be really averse to thinking that their personal data is being used and political parties are really risk averse. You know, they don't want to court that, um, that story about them using technology in a kind of creepy or intrusive way,
1: and I suppose that goes back to the, the whole thing where people think their phones are listening to them because they they are talking about something and then it then pops up on Facebook, and that that sense of you know how did they know about that? And actually, the truth is, is because you know all the other adverts that you don't even clock. It's because you know it, it's making that you're the one making that connection rather than the tech. And in terms of the the the. Um, Uh, transparency that we might see at this election? Am I right? I'm trying to remember if it was 2017 or 2019. There was a Facebook in particular, a site that you could go online and see all the adverts that that the uh, uh, political parties were paying for and publishing. I mean, obviously that doesn't include uh, things which are shared organically and things by external actors. But do we know yet what approach tech companies might take in terms of transparency about who is... Uh, posting stuff online for the for the elections next year
5: yeah so the major companies do have advertising archives so this is only ads so paid for content very specific type of content so meta have one so you can see what's going on on um, facebook and instagram uh, and there's also one on google but it's kind of worth noting that all of these advertising archives contain different things, and they're notoriously glitchy. So in the 2019 election, um, the Facebook um, advertising archive was actually found to not be uh, reporting in real time and there are errors within it. So they're not necessarily reliable. And I think if you think about the number of elections that are going to be happening next year, we know that these companies have really cut their staff um, who are helping to support these kind of initiatives. So there's real danger that they're actually going to be less reliable than they were last time around.
1: Kate, it's absolutely fascinating. Thanks Laura. There's Kate Domit there, Professor of Digital Politics at the University of Sheffield, on uh, how worried we should be, or otherwise, about the use of uh, AI and tech in the next election. Well, a month ago, Slovakia went to the polls. They had their election uh, this year. It was a tight race between the liberal pro-NATO Progressive Slovakia Party and SMER, which campaigned to withdraw military support for its neighbour in Ukraine. Uh, well, let's now speak to Veronika Hinsova who is from the Slovak Governance Institute uh, and is a project manager at the fact-checking organisation Demagogue in Slovakia. Hi, Veronika.
6: Hi, good morning.
1: Explain what happened in Slovakia then, what, 48 hours before the vote, an audio recording appeared. What did it appear to show and what impact did it then have on the election?
6: Uh, We've had in the last week before uh, the elections, we've had two AI recordings appear. Uh, First of them was the leader of the uh, progressive party uh, that you mentioned and that was leading the polls at that time. Um, And what started circulating was an audio recording of him suggesting to uh, increase the prices of beer drastically by 70 to 100 percent. Uh, which was uh, which we fact checked at Deagogue uh, SK as an AI generated uh, recording uh, and uh, labeled it as, uh, as altered. Uh, but this was before the moratorium, but uh, after the moratorium started, uh, there was another recording uh, which was between this uh, leader of the Progressive Party and the Slovak journalist. and on this recording they were supposedly uh, talking about how exactly they will uh, manipulate the elections together. It seems to be such a background talk of uh, who will get the envelopes where and how will the payouts roll out. Uh, and a lot of people were sharing this, although it was um, recognizable, not natural, especially on her part. You could see that it was a neural voice. You could hear that it was a neural voice. A lot of people were sharing it not only on Facebook or Instagram, but also in uh, WhatsApp messages, in chain emails. Uh, and they, uh, I, I, a lot of them believed in it.
1: And the problem, you mentioned the moratorium, explain, because we, we don't really have this in the same way in the UK, explain what the moratorium is uh, in electoral law in Slovakia and why it was then hard for the, I suppose we call the mainstream media to debunk this clip that was being circulated.
6: So in Slovakia, the last 48 hours before the elections, no political parties or actors, neither the um, media, should uh, enter uh, the political contest in any way in those last two days. They should not inform uh, any news about the uh, elections. Um, They should not introduce any kind of new information. It's the time that politicians usually post uh, pictures of their pets or families on facebook <laughs> and everybody should sort of calm down and not inform anymore uh, it is designed precisely because uh when something um, some kind of a hu- huge piece of news uh pops out in the last days uh the uh the political parties do not have the time to react on it but instead it is uh, frequently used by some sort of anonymous anti-campaigns because it is exactly the time when uh or when nobody uh, should, according to the law, react to it.
1: It's really really interesting that. So the timing of it was also uh, really crucial. We've we've seen uh, an example of this in the UK a couple of weeks ago when we were at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. uh, A clip emerged online, it was an audio clip, apparently showing Keir Starmer, although it wasn't, it was a fake, uh, complaining about Liverpool, saying he was unhappy about being in Liverpool. And there's something about, even when you know it's fake hearing it it's, it's it's sort of two parts of your brain are try to operate at the same time and and you just wonder whether uh in the examples that you gave of of what happened in Slovakia even if people know it's fake and it sounds uh artificial it does in some way change your opinion of the of the politician, the less extreme it is, the more likely maybe people will think, well, it sounds about right, doesn't it? It's sort of the thing that they would get up to. So do you think there was any impact on the Slovakian election as a result of these fake clips?
6: Um, I think that uh, it reached the people who were already convinced and mm. already too uh, prone to believe it. Uh, we know that disinformation mostly targets those who, uh, who have some uh, prior beliefs, uh that it is in accordance with and in this case um i don't believe personally that it may have persuaded somebody who would have voted differently but it may have affected the immobilization That it may have added the urgency of what if these elections really will be manipulated even in even for people who uh, may have not been sure uh, whether it was a real recording or not uh this recording was uh, a sort of a uh, ending of a long, uh, long-term long campaign that uh, the disinformation actors have been um, warning people for months, like, watch out, what if the elections will be manipulated? And they were adding subtle hints, yeah. such as uh, how, to, how to look at the envelope, or uh, who are the actors that could manipulate the party, including some tech companies in Slovakia, which, in fact, have nothing to do with the elections. But they were sort of setting the stage, and the recording was something that uh, played right into it. So it could have been the final proof for some people that it is really necessary to actually get up and go vote. Otherwise, the elections may be somehow manipulated.
1: manipulated. It's really interesting. And I suppose it also goes back to the point when stuff is flying around in WhatsApp groups. There's no way of of tracking that, you know, if one thing, if if the paid adverts being, you know, posted on Facebook are supposed to be being declared, but something flying around in people's private messages and so on is very difficult to track just how many people have seen it. Veronica, really good to speak to you. Thank you for that. uh, Veronica Hintsova-Frankovska from the Slovak Governance Institute. Let's speak now to Martha Lane Fox, tech entrepreneur and crossbench peer. Hi, Martha.
7: Hello, Matt. Good morning.
1: Um, what do you make of the conversation that Rishi Sunak has started, but also the one that we've been having? Are we being too doomsdayish about the, the threats of AI rather than looking at the opportunities?
7: I don't think it's so binary. Um, inevitably, it's all in the nuance for me. I think that Rishi Sunak has carved out a particular position in all of this. Clearly, you, know, you have to pick something, and I guess he has picked the things that he feels are the most sort of existentially terrifying. I'm not totally sure I completely agree that it's right to focus on them, although I think government should be worrying about those big questions. I wish there was also some focus on things that are happening now and happening quickly. I'm sure you're aware, Matt, of an amazing woman called Professor Wendy Hall has done a lot of work in this and she's listened to her. She's been focusing on AI since you know the 70s or 80s. It's not a new thing, as she would say. You know, AI has been around for way beyond when we all discovered it with Chat GPT this year, and her point is that. There are things, of course, that we need to think about in the future. And Kieran is going to be the expert on some of those, um, you know, between states, national threats. But there are things that right now we are looking into over the next 12 months. And she's talked repeatedly about the threats to elections and democracies. So I'm quite a practical person in all of this. I think it's really super important to think about what we can see happening right now that we can get our hands around and where we can try and actually affect some of the outcomes.
1: Well, let's bring in Kevin Martin then, uh, who is a former chief oh, Executive of the National Cyber Security <laughs> Centre, uh, which is part of GCHQ. He's now at the uh, uh, Blavat- Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Matt. Hi, Martin. Um, hey. Put into context um, for us, Kieran, how how concerned should we be about the threats posed by AI to elections uh, given that i mean we've got the uk and us elections likely to to be pretty close to each other next year other elections taking place as well i suppose actually just listening to what martha was saying there th- the problem is uh, people who want to do bad things isn't it rather than the technology and people have always tried to harness whatever tools they had at their disposal how how worried should we be about our elections next year
8: I think we should have confidence in our own values and our own systems. I broadly agree with the tone that Martha struck other than bigging me up. Um, She (laughs) talked about Dame Wendy Hall's work on AI not being particularly new in some of its aspects. I think that's right, but also electoral interference isn't, New uh, ninety nine years ago yesterday, we had the British election of nineteen twenty four, marred, of course, by the infamous Novyi of letter. So, if there is an election next October, it'll be a hundred years to the month since there was a forgery, what we what we now call a deep fake, which convinced a lot of people that the Soviets were uh, colluding with the British Communist Party to engineer a Labour victory. So, again, this isn't new, and there are different aspects of the problem. We're not talking about AI generated fakes because AI. Unusually when we talk about AI, we're talking about scale. In this case, we're talking about sophistication. We're talking about the ability to impersonate a Slovak political leader's voice and so forth. But there are other risks. So if you go back to the 2016 US election and the 2019 British election, on a large scale in the US and on a small scale in the US, there was a problem of real information that was stolen. So it wasn't faked, but computer hackers stole from the Democratic Party, from Hillary Clinton's campaign. You may remember a moment in the 2019 election where Jeremy Corbyn brandished a letter, which was genuine from the Department of International Trade, purporting to suggest that as part of a UK-US trade deal, there would be some sort of private involvement in the NHS. So there's a whole plethora of challenges, and it's it's fashionable to say, oh, AI, deepfakes, that's the thing. There are particular quirks in the Slovak election. But I think what we're completely underestimating in this conversation is our own agency, If we let ourselves get easily divided, if we just leap on whatever fake information and let it travel all the way around the country and let it set the tone before anybody checks it... If you look at, you mentioned um, when you were talking to a previous guest, uh, the Secure the Starmer fake, to the credit of conservative ministers, they went immediately out and said, don't listen to this. It's fake. We have agency in this. Not a lot of it, as you say, is technological. But we need to look at what are, the, what are the plethora of threats. They could be old-fashioned forgeries. They could be the theft of genuine information, but it's supposed to be private. And the fact that the Russians, whoever, are leaking it means that we shouldn't perhaps take it as seriously and give it as much credence as we otherwise do. We need to look at uh, deep fakes. We need to look at the security of the electoral register and so forth. But as Martha says, there are practical solutions to this problem. And the one thing I'm really passionate about is we shouldn't completely talk up the threat because by so doing, we undermine confidence in our own democracy. If the next election is dominated not by the campaign, but by fears over its integrity, however well-grounded or ill-founded, then we're doing the adversary's work for them. Really
1: Can interesting. I just, yes, yeah, go
7: on, Martha. Sorry, I was just gonna I completely agree with Kieran, sadly for your listeners, which not <laughs> in world agreement. But the one thing I would add is, you know, as a still scarred ex director of Twitter, I'm gonna call it that resolutely sorry, that I do agree with um was it sorry, Kate, I think, who said that the dramatic reduction in some of the teams in some of the companies in the short term is, in my opinion, a significant risk. It's not a major existential threat, but it will change the nature of what those platforms are able to spout out, and that does matter. So I agree with Kieran, but I think it has to be realistic that there has been a change, particularly in X, and therefore that will have a consequence somewhere in the chain.
1: And I suppose at a time when... Uh, despite, obviously, the excellent output from Times Radio, uh, at a time when some people are moving away from mainstream, you know, not sitting down and watching the 6 o'clock news, not listening to the news bulletins on the radio, getting their news from online, if that isn't being curated in some way to to, to at the very least not over-promote this fake stuff, then uh, that that becomes a problem that those checks and balances that you were talking about, Kieran, aren't always going to be there if you are relying on other people on these different platforms to sort of police them themselves. I think that's right. And I think Martha's right. Again, apologies for the agreement on... It's fine. We don't mind that.
8: We don't mind that. We, We haven't come here for a fight. But the (laughs) the fact that capabilities are diminished in the likes of ex-Twitter to moderate content and so forth. But it's quite interesting. And I think your question is very perceptive, Matt, because it's quite interesting to look at other examples to make sure that we update regulation. So Slovakia is a really interesting example. There are three, if you like, quirks to the Slovakian experience. One is it was deeply polarised anyway. It was the most pro-Russian country in Central and Eastern Europe. That was not created by this deep fake. But there are two other aspects which I think show that we can get sort of regulation wrong, both at the state level, and a corporate level. So many European countries, although not the UK, have got this sort of moratorium 24, 48 hours before the election, and it doesn't work in the digital age because you can't contest stuff like this. Uh, Sometimes that works in your favour. So when the Russians hacked the Macron campaign, they didn't know about the moratorium, so they leaked it all on a day when it couldn't be broadcast. But in the Slovak case, it worked against, if you like, the promotion of truth. But the other thing about the Slovak thing, which is really weird but easy to fix, is that under Meta's rules, because it was audio and not video, um, it was much harder for Meta to correct it because they had all these policies about deep fake videos turns out they didn't have all these policies about deep fake audio so they had to scramble around and so forth and it took them longer again that's easy to fix so look at these look at these experiences you know there's something quite interesting going on in the us where um, the federal elections commission is is consulting on it hasn't done it yet but it's consulting on requiring candidates to take responsibility for their information now that wouldn't have fixed the slovak problem but if you look at Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign, he's put out this ridiculous video of Donald Trump, um, apparently hugging Dr. Fauci, who, you know, is a hate figure amongst the Republican right. It's complete fake. Everybody knows it's complete fake. It was put out officially by this DeSantis campaign. And there is proposals from the FEC in the United States and the US has done some really interesting work on electoral protection, which is why the 2020 election was so so safe as has been seen through the courts. The, F- the Federal Elections Commission is talking about uh, making uh, candidates liable if they put out clearly fake videos and haven't done the due diligence. There are ideas like that, yeah. none of it's going to fix every potential threat, but through looking smartly at what's happening, the way the threats are going, f- fixing anomalies such as you can't, you know, meta will take action for the video, but not but not if it's an audio. You
1: can start to chip
8: away pragmatically and practically at some of these Just harms. making a bit harder, and yeah. And
1: people's confidence. And I, I suppose there's, there's 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 lots of different uh, actors in this, aren't there? There's obviously candidates doing it, and then, that, you know, that could be called out and, like I said, possibly dealt with by regulation. But where would external... Is it is it just the case, you know, it is Russia, it is Iran, there's a conversation going on right now about Iran's role in some of the uh, the trouble we've been seeing in the UK. Is that where we might see those external actors actually just try to stir things up a bit, cause chaos and, and confusion online, rather than sort of to do, do down or do up one particular candidate? What are the particular countries we should be keeping an eye on, Kieran?
8: Uh, well, I think the ones you mentioned, Russia, Iran, um, in a slightly more subtle way, China. And they sort of do different things. So, um, And there are different mitigations against them. So Russia stole a bunch of information and leaked it to promote chaos in 2016. Interestingly, when that was threatened in 2020, the Washington Post, for example, said if it received a large batch of unverified documentation of suspicious prominence, it mightn't mightn't publish it. And that's quite interesting about how the reaction uh, uh, works. You mentioned in your chatting to Professor Kate Donner, you mentioned stuff around TikTok and so forth. I mean, that's a legitimate business, but with a deeply powerful algorithm that chooses what people see, which mm. is a different problem from, from AI-generated images. With AI-generated images, I think there will always be the problem, as you say, you can regulate candidates, you can't regulate hostile foreign um, activity. So there is something, if you can't verify where this came from, You know, how much should it be promoted? That is problematic at the moment. I think media have varying degrees of um, responsible behavior um about how they do it Um, some of the platforms are more responsible than others Mm -hmm. and how they handle it we do need to get better there that is a vulnerable flank at the moment in our um in our electoral protections But there are some ways we can think about doing it. There's some really interesting things happening technologically. So some MIT researchers have come up with a way that might work about making it harder to doctor images, where they put in sort of hidden code into the pixels of images of of major public figures. So if you do doctor it through AI, it looks preposterous. Um, So, you know, know, again, there'll be no perfect solution, but there are little things that you can... Exactly.
1: And I suppose that's a sign that all technology is evolving, not just, you know, potentially bad technology. Uh, Kevin, really, really good speech, speak Martin there, uh, former chief executive of the National Cybersecurity uh, Centre now at the uh, Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Also good to speak to Martha Lane Fox, tech entrepreneur and crossbench peer. And I'm sure this is no doubt something we will return to uh, in the coming weeks and months and there in the run-up to the uh, general election. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to search how to win an election and hit follow so you get the brand new episode as soon as it drops on Tuesday, October the 31st. But for now, from me, Matt Trotty, it's goodbye.